Though it is not nice to make the preacher cry before he has to, to preach, uh, actually it is very nice. It's a kindness, brother, to be, to be wrapped up and consumed with uh, the glory of Christ in all things. Good morning, men. Uh, would you please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And while you turn there, I'll take the time to add my voice to thanking God for the ministry of, of John MacArthur. The, the impact of Pastor John on my life is impossible to express, but I think a, a fair summary is to say that I know and enjoy Jesus better because he has been committed to exposit the scriptures with no gimmicks, with no additives, with no innovations, just the unfettered scripture wherein the glory of Christ is revealed. And I know and enjoy the most precious one um, because of you as you've stood in this desk, at this desk for 50 years, so thank you. And uh, one of the privileges, privileges of serving alongside Pastor John is to be around and hear him speak about the things that have most influenced him, and, and recently he's been doing that as he's been reflecting on 50 years, and, and one of the things that he has spoken about is the influence that uh, Stephen Charnox, the existence and attributes of God, had made on him early in his ministry, setting a course this, this large, grand, big view of God. It's been rightly said that the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And uh, that leads me to commend to you a book I was asked to commend to you, which I do so happily. Uh, this book is called None Greater by Matthew Barrett, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. It came out on Tuesday, so it is fresh off the press. It's available in the bookstore for uh, a price that is amazing. I think you can get that book for $8.50. Um, that's like a cup of coffee. Skip a coffee and get this book. <laughs> I don't want to say too much about this, but the evangelical doctrine of God has suffered in the last several decades. And Dr. Barrett has done us all a service because, uh, while nobody could certainly imitate uh, Charnock or or even Herman Bovink. Uh, Matthew Barrett has taken the classical view of God, uh, surrendering to none of the, the uh, compromises of a contemporary understanding of God and has retrieved that for us in a fresh, contemporary way. So I commend that book to you. Well, it has been such a privilege and a delight for me to sit alongside you all this week to worship the Lord together, to sing together, to pray together, to sit under the faithful preaching of his word together, and to consider how we can press further toward faithfulness as we serve the Lord in the ministry to which he has called us. And what a privilege and a joy it is for me to stand before you now and to open the word of God to you as we consider what it is to be faithful in evangelism. Faithful in evangelism is the topic that has been assigned to me. The faithful pastor, the faithful minister, the faithful elder, the faithful servant of Christ and his church must be faithful in evangelism. 
Just as the faithful pastor must be exemplary in personal holiness, just as he must be exemplary in loving the brethren and shepherding his family, just as he must be the lead discipler in the church and the lead worshiper in the church, so also is the faithful pastor the lead evangelist in the church. He must prove himself to be an example to the flock in the regular speaking of the gospel to unbelievers, both inside and outside the church. Inside the church, as he proclaims the gospel from the pulpit, seeking to see sinners saved under the ministry of the word, and outside the church, as he takes the gospel to both friends and strangers, whom the Lord in his providence has sovereignly placed in his life. Now, on what basis can I make that claim? that the faithful shepherd must be a faithful evangelist. Well, it's at least fourfold. First, it is the church's commission. The, the church's great commission from the Lord Jesus is that we must go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19. And though making disciples involves more than making converts, we must baptize and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded us, Nevertheless, making disciples starts with making converts. Making disciples begins with conversion. And so making disciples begins with faithful evangelism, with the very proclamation Jesus himself prescribes in Luke's account of the Great Commission, namely that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all the nations. Every member of the church has been commissioned to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. How much more incumbent upon pastors to obey that commission. Second, it's the Savior's command. In Matthew 4, 4 and 19, Jesus called Peter and Andrew to a life of discipleship, to a life of following him. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, at least one thing it means is to become an evangelist. In Matthew 4, 19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The genuine disciple of Christ follows Christ by spreading out the net of the gospel and drawing sinners to the Savior. This is true of every real disciple of Jesus. Dr. Lawson puts it well when he says, if you're not fishing, you're not following. And again, that's true of every disciple of Christ. How much more for those who have been entrusted with leading and shepherding those disciples? Third, consider the apostles' example. So many pastors and church leaders and, and evangelical pundits today are wearying themselves trying to discover what the mission of the church is. What's its role in politics? What's its role in fighting poverty? What's its role in accomplishing social justice and so on? But if you survey the book of Acts, it's clear what the apostles and early disciples understood their mission to be. It was the verbal proclamation of the gospel. The book of Acts is shot through with phrases like these. Peter raised his voice and declared to them. He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. Preaching the word, proclaiming Christ, speaking the word of the Lord, preaching the gospel, proving that Jesus is the Christ. 
We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. If you want to know what the church's mission is, look at the book of Acts. The apostles were not confused about it. You'll find that about one out of every four verses in the book of Acts is a record of a sermon or some other sort of evangelistic witness. Brothers, if you want to stand in the stream of the apostles, you need to be faithful in evangelism. And besides the church's commission, the Savior's command, the apostles' example, we also have the Scripture's charge. When we think about the responsibilities of pastoral ministry, our minds instantly leap to Paul's charge to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That is the weightiest charge in all of Scripture. And yet it doesn't end in verse 2. Paul goes on to explain that the time is coming where men won't endure sound doctrine but will seek teachers to tickle their ears. And then he says in 2 Timothy 4, 5, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Part of what it meant for young Pastor Timothy to be faithful in preaching the word in Ephesus was to do the work of an evangelist as he preached the word. Notice, Paul does not say preach the word for a while and then transition to the office of a, from the office of a pastor into the office of an evangelist. No, as you are fulfilling the duties of a pastor, also do the work of an evangelist. Be absorbed, Timothy with laboring to see sinners saved by your preaching of the gospel of Christ. Men, if we are to fulfill our ministry, if we are to be faithful pastors of Christ's flock, we must be faithful in evangelism. Our lives must be characterized by regularly speaking the gospel to those the Lord has put in our path. Our preaching must aim at the salvation of sinners as well as the edification of the saints. Every Sunday morning, we ought to be fraught with Paul's burden from 1 Corinthians 9, 16. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. We ought to be of a kindred spirit with Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, the fact is, brethren, we must have conversion work here. We cannot go on, as some churches do, without converts. We cannot, we will not, we must not, we dare not. Souls must be converted here. Elsewhere, Spurgeon said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled... Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Brothers, that must be the cry of our heart as well. This must consume us. We must be faithful in evangelism. But how will we do that? What will drive us to faithfulness in this task with which we have been entrusted? 
As we consider this question, the text that I want us to focus on this morning is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 21. Let's read this text together. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's in this section of 2 Corinthians that Paul speaks about what drives him in ministry, what keeps him going, what keeps him from losing heart, what compels him each morning to lay down his life for Christ and the gospel, even in the midst of great hostility and opposition? What is the driving motivation of his life that fuels and empowers radically sacrificial evangelistic ministry? Answer, the love of Jesus. He says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Paul is compellingly motivated. He is absolutely driven. He is entirely consumed by the love that Christ has demonstrated to his people by saving them through his death on the cross. The reality that God the Son, eternally equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, fully entitled to remain in the majesty of heaven, left the incessant worship of the saints and angels and the face-to-face fellowship with his Father and took to himself the weakness and the indignity of human nature. The infinite one confined to the space of a human body. The immutable one subject to the pains of growth and maturity. The sustainer of all things being sustained in the womb of a young woman. The giver of the law born under the law. The Lord become obedient. The master become the slave of all, the author of life put to death, and not just death, but death on a cross, and not just death on a cross, but bearing the divine curse that falls upon everyone who is hanged from a tree, bearing in himself the very punishment that I deserved, experiencing in his own consciousness the alienation and abandonment of his Father that belonged to me for an eternity in hell. Paul says the the reality that the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me, that love is measureless. 
That love is infinite. Its breadth and its height and its length and its depth are beyond tracing out. It's a love that surpasses all knowledge. Paul says that love, the love of Christ, controls us. It constrains us. It compels us. It dominates us. Paul says it gets me out of the bed in the morning. It gets the blood flowing through my veins. And if the persecution and the suffering that I face ever tempts me to slacken up in ministry, to slow down or back off or even give up, Paul says, I raise my eyes to Calvary's cross and I behold my Savior being crushed under the weight of God's wrath in my place. And his love so beautifully displayed in that cross ignites the passion in my heart that no promise of a comfortable life or the praise of men could ever extinguish. I am driven, I'm constrained, I am compelled to lay down my life in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ by the very love of Christ displayed in the gospel that I must proclaim. It is the love of Christ as displayed in the gospel that drove the Apostle Paul to difficult, enduring, faithful, evangelistic ministry. And if we would follow his example, if we would be faithful in evangelism, we need to be driven by what he was driven by. We need need to be overwhelmed. We need to be dominated. We need to be ravished by the love of Christ, just as he was. And if that's going to happen, the love of Christ has to be the object of our meditation, because that's how it worked for Paul. Look again at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this. And then what follows is a celebration of key theological realities of the gospel. Substitution, transformation, regeneration, reconciliation, and justification. It's as if the love of Christ displayed in the gospel is this multifaceted gem, this glorious diamond that Paul is absolutely fascinated with, absolutely transfixed by. And as the passage unfolds, it's as if he turns this diamond of the gospel to admire it and its brilliance from every angle, glorying in the way that the light of Christ's love beams through every facet of soteriological truth. Paul is is motivated to faithfulness in evangelism by the message of the gospel itself. And brothers, so must we be. And so we're going to spend our time this morning celebrating, celebrating five facets of gospel truth that magnify the brilliance of Christ's love. Five theological components of the gospel that, 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 that display the love of Christ which compels us to faithfulness in evangelism. And this first facet of the gospel lies at its very heart, and that is that the gospel is fundamentally a matter of substitution, of penal substitution. Look again at verse 14. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. One died for all. That is to say that one died on behalf of all. One died in place of all. This is penal substitutionary atonement. The one man, Jesus Christ, suffered the penalty for the sins of all his people as a substitute for us. And this 
Penal substitution is, as I said, the very heart of Christianity. It is woven throughout the fabric of God's revelation from beginning to end. So often wrapped up in that little word, for. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in place of the sheep. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. We were doomed to bear the curse of sin for ourselves, and yet Christ has stood in our place and has become a curse for us as our substitute. He's our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5.7, who has been sacrificed to death so that we, covered by his blood, might escape the wrath of God that was rightly due to us. He is the Passover lamb, sorry, he is the scapegoat of Leviticus 16, who bears the sins of God's people and is banished from God's presence so that his people might remain in communion with him. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who justifies the many by bearing our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. This is what the cross is. This is what Paul was compelled by. Christian, your sins were so great Your iniquities had gone so far over your head that you had absolutely no hope but to die, to perish eternally as the just payment for your crimes against the holy God. And while you were helpless, while you could do nothing to avert your necessary spiritual death, Jesus died for you. The infinitely worthy one stepped into your place and all the wrath that you rightly deserve, every ounce of the unmixed fury that God would have justly visited upon you in the eternal torments of hell was fully poured out on your substitute in those three terrible hours on Calvary. And that message compelled Paul to faithful evangelism. The innocent Son of God, standing in the place of guilty sinners, bearing in his own person the full exercise of the righteous wrath of his Father against the sins of his people, so that we who are guilty might justly be declared righteous, because our penalty has been paid by our substitute. But I want you to notice something in particular about this substitution that's at the heart of the Christian message. That is that it's an effectual substitution. It's an effectual substitution. Look again at verse 14. Paul says, one died for all, therefore all died. Christ's death effects or produces or brings about the death of all those for whom he died. Paul is drawing on the reality here that Christ is the representative head of his people. That is to say that there exists such a union between Christ the head and his people, the body, that when he died to sin on that cross, in some real sense, his people also died to sin on that cross. In him. 
And just as Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, so also his people, having died to sin in him, can never perish under the curse of sin. This is an effectual substitution, which necessarily means that it was a particular substitution. If Christ's substitutionary atonement was effectual on behalf of those for whom it was offered, then the wrath he bore on that cross can never break over the heads of those in whose place he stood. The all for whom Christ died are the all who died to sin and self in him as a consequence of their union with him in his death and resurrection, sovereignly ordained by the Father from eternity. These are the elect of God. In the language of John 6, these are all whom the Father had given to the Son. And so what this means, friends, is that the atonement of Christ was not a generalized sacrifice made for a nameless, faceless group who would eventually activate, actualize this inefficacious atonement's potential. No. The death of Christ was a personal sacrifice, efficaciously accomplished by the Savior who said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, and I lay my life down for the sheep. John 10, 14, and 15. The one who said, I have come down from heaven to do the will of my Father, the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. John 6, 38 and 39. Jesus died for all whom the Father gave to him, those whom the Father chose from before the foundation of the world. Jesus died for his sheep, who he says he knows by name, Jesus, brothers, took names to the cross. Not, this is not a generalized, faceless gospel for nobody in particular. This is an intensely personal gospel of which we can sing, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. That when the Son of God died as a substitute to bear the wrath of God and to pay for sin, he did it for me. I personally was on his mind as he suffered the divine curse. My name was on his hands. My sin was paid for. My salvation was purchased. Because in the mystery of divine grace, God the Father chose me to be a vessel of mercy in which he would display his boundless grace rather than his righteous judgment based on nothing in me. That is a gospel that drives you. Do you see why Paul is so driven and so motivated by this gospel? Because the love of Christ that compels him isn't a general potential love, but a personal, actual love for Paul himself. The particularity of the gospel that Christ has died for me personally in a way that he hasn't died for those who end up in hell, separated him for, from him forever. That gospel is worth preaching. That gospel is worth living for. That gospel is worth suffering for. Brothers, that gospel is worth dying for. And so I urge you to preach that gospel. Preach the sovereign power of an effectual substitution. Not a cross which brings the potential for salvation or the possibility of salvation but a wrath-satisfying cross that sovereignly accomplishes an actual, complete salvation for all for whom it was intended. 
we see a second facet of gospel truth in this glorious diamond of the saving love of Christ in verse 15. Not only substitution, but also, number two, transformation. Transformation, or you could say sanctification. Paul writes, and he, Jesus, died for all, that is, all who were united to him in his death and resurrection, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This gospel that Paul is compelled to preach is a gospel that, is, that does not only pay for the penalty for our sins and credit us with the perfect righteousness of Christ so that we can stand before God justified and forgiven. And that would be enough. That would be more than enough to demonstrate the large-hearted, magnanimous, gracious heart of God our Savior. But more than securing a forensic righteousness, positional righteousness for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great captain of salvation, continually and progressively works practical righteousness in us. More than merely changing our status before God, which again is glorious. More than that, the Lord Jesus takes people who are fundamentally driven to live for and unto themselves, and he transforms their minds and their affections and their wills so that they willingly lay down their lives to live for him. This gospel turns self-focused, self-centered, self-gratifying, self-willed, self-pleasing haters of God into delightfully willing slaves of God. See, the entire purpose of Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection on behalf of his people is to progressively transform us into the image of his own glory. The entire purpose for which he justifies his people is so that he can sanctify us. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us. There's substitution again, for us in our place. He gave himself for us as a substitute to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds, not who are ambivalent about good deeds. 1 Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, again, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Ephesians 5.25-27, Christ gave himself for his bride so that he might sanctify her, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The Lord Jesus Christ, friends, is no half-savior. The Christ who justified his bride will not fail to sanctify his bride. He will not redeem his people from the guilt of lawlessness and yet fail to purify them from the practice of lawlessness. And that means that we must preach a God, we must never preach a gospel that is divorced from the demands of Christ's lordship. In his mighty work of salvation, Christ has purchased both the justification and the sanctification of his people. Both blessings are in him. And so to preach the gospel in such a way that suggests that we can lay hold of justifying righteousness through the union with Christ, but not also lay hold of sanctifying righteousness through that same union, is to tear Christ to pieces. 
It's to make him half a savior. But Paul says, I preach no such half gospel. I preach no such half savior. I preach, if Dr. Ferguson will lend me the title, the whole Christ. The justifying and sanctifying Christ. A gospel that unites people to Christ not only in his death, but also in his resurrection so that they are raised to walk in newness of life. A gospel that not only forgives by effectual substitution, as glorious as that is, but a gospel that also sanctifies by practical transformation. And as Paul continues meditating on the love of Christ displayed in the gospel, he moves from this transformation in which sinners no longer live unto themselves but now live unto Christ to the source of that progressive sanctification namely the definitive sanctification of regeneration. Regeneration. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And we need to be a new creation, don't we? Something was so fundamentally wrong with humanity by its very nature that the Lord Jesus Christ declares in John chapter 3 that if we are to have any hope of seeing the kingdom of God, we must be born all over again. We come into this world spiritually dead. All of our faculties, corrupted by sin, mind, heart, will. Our minds are blinded, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Our ears are uncircumcised, and so we cannot hear the words of God, John 8. Our hearts are desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9. Ezekiel 36 says they are hearts of stone, cold and unresponsive to the glory and the meaning of divine truth. Sin has so pervaded our entire nature that nothing less than the wholesale renovation of the soul is required for salvation. We need to be made alive. We need regeneration. And in Christ, we find God's grace suited precisely to our need. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And what is the very first result of that regenerating work. Verse 16, second half, it is that we who had known Christ according to the flesh now know him in this way no longer. To know, to know Christ according to the flesh means to regard him with fleshly standards of evaluation. Now Paul describes that in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 when he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is the sinner's problem. This is what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. Not that you're motionless or stagnant, but that you're devoid of the spiritual life that allows you to see and value the glory of Christ that's revealed in the gospel. The essence of spiritual death is spiritual blindness to the glory of Christ. Our spiritual perception is so disordered by sin that we look upon him who is objectively delightful and we're repulsed by him. And yet, 
we see what is repulsive, <clears throat> namely the glory of sin and of self, and we're enamored with it. We're infatuated with it. We love the darkness and we hate the light. We love filth and we despise beauty. But then, in magnificent, sovereign, monergistic, regenerating grace, apart from any of our own doing, and brothers, apart even from any of our own believing, God irresistibly shines the light of life into the blind heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Just as in the beginning when God said, Let there be light, and by the creative power of his word, the galaxies leapt into existence. So in regeneration, God sovereignly speaks into this darkened and dead heart. Let there be light. And instantaneously, he births the light of eternal spiritual life where it had not existed. He gives us new spiritual eyes so that we finally see sin for what it is in all its objective ugliness. And we finally see Christ for who he is in all of his objective beauty and glory. And with our eyes finally opened, finally able to see and evaluate things as they actually are, we turn away in repentant disgust from the filth of sin and self, and we cling to our glorious Savior with the embrace of saving faith. When Almighty God issues his sovereign decree for light to shine forth in the heart that is dead in sin, when the eyes are opened and the ears are finally unstopped, when the heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, the newborn soul takes its first breath called saving faith in Christ, and by that faith, un faith union lays hold of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the sin that once tasted sweet now brings nothing but bitterness. The sin that was once so alluring and satisfying now has no pull on your affections. It's lost on you. And the holiness that you once had no taste for is now what you hunger and thirst after. You no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. Dear brothers, don't preach behavior modification. Don't preach moralism. Don't preach Christianity as cleaning up your life and your language, parroting out a few memorized phrases, showing up at church once a week and learning to do all the things that you hate and to refuse to do all the things that you love. No, preach Christianity as regeneration, as the spiritual heart surgery performed by Almighty God whereby he sovereignly transforms your futile thinking your corrupt affections, your enslaved wills, so that by the grace of Christ you are made entirely a new creation from the inside out. Well, Paul turns this glittering gem of the gospel once again, and we behold a fourth facet of gospel truth. We've seen substitution, transformation, and regeneration. We come now to number four, to reconciliation. Reconciliation. We see this in verse 18. To begin with, Paul writes, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. See, because of sin, 
We who were created for intimate friendship with our creator have become his enemies, Romans 5.10. Colossians 1.21 says that we were alienated from God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Romans 8, 7, Paul says, the mind set on the flesh, which is to say the mind, the human mind in its natural state, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, we have offended this holy God. And we are in such a helplessly sinful condition to be unable to do anything to overcome the alienation which has resulted. Now usually, when there is reconciliation to be had between alienated parties, a third party is enlisted as an impartial mediator to initiate the restoration of the relationship. Or, or maybe even more appropriately, the offending party initiates reconciliation by going to the one that he's offended and, and asking for forgiveness and asking for terms of peace. But while we Sinful human beings were still in open, full-throated revolt against our loving and gracious creator. He, the offended party, took the initiative in accomplishing our reconciliation. While we were running in the other direction away from God, obstinately persisting in the very rebellion that is the substance of our alienation, God reconciled us to himself through Christ Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Because of this most glorious atonement accomplished by our great high priest, we who were once alienated and separated from the God we were created to know and worship are now reconciled. We are restored to loving fellowship with him. Christ died once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. There's substitution again. But there's a so that. There's a deeper purpose, a greater aim, a more ultimate aim at which this substitution presses toward. Christ died for all the righteous, for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. That is what salvation is about. That is what is, is, is its goal. It's restoring us to the awe-satisfying, unspeakably glorious, consummately delightful God that our sin had cut us off from. It's one thing for the righteous to die for the unrighteous. It's one thing for a judge to declare a guilty criminal righteous because a sufficient payment has been rendered on his behalf. But it, it is an entirely another thing for that judge to enter into personal relationship with that forgiven criminal, for that judge to welcome him into his home, for him to become as a father and care for that criminal as if he was his own son. Brothers, in the marvelous gift of salvation, God does not merely make an alteration in his bookkeeping concerning the sin reckoned to our account. The judge doesn't merely drop the charges against us. Our God reconciles us to himself through Christ so that we may have, Ephesians 2.18, access to our Father in whose presence, David says, is fullness of joy in whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our sin had cut us off from him. This magnificent treasure, this ocean of delight, 
And the cross of Christ overcomes the alienation and the hostility that exists between us, exists between us and purchases the reconciliation that brings us back to him. The very bottom of why the gospel is good news is because it reconciles us to the God who makes heaven heaven. And so we need to preach the gospel that way in a way that makes clear that Jesus is not merely the stepping stone to bigger and better things, to your real treasure that brings you real satisfaction, the God you really worship. We need to preach the gospel as if, as is so, as is reality, that the greatest prize and the most ultimate blessing of salvation is restored fellowship with the triune God himself. That heaven is heaven because God is there. That eternal life is to know the only true God and Christ Jesus whom he has sent. Reconciliation gets us him. And I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing him, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. But how is this reconciliation achieved? Well, Paul shifts the diamond again. And he beholds the light of gospel glory from a fifth facet, namely justification. Justification. And we see that both in verses 19 and 21. We'll start with verse 19. Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How? Not counting their trespasses against them. And counting there is logizomai. It's that familiar word that Paul uses again and again to refer to the doctrine of imputation. God accomplishes this reconciliation of the world by not imputing or not counting our sins to our account. But how can a perfectly righteous, perfectly good God whose holy nature is to punish all sin and wrongdoing simply not count our trespasses against us. He can't just sweep sin under the rug. He can't just look the other way. If God is holy, sin must be punished. He can't pretend as if his own character, his own holiness, his own worthiness and loveliness ought not to be honored with the utmost reverence. When his character is violated by human sin, he must remain consistent with his own holiness, and therefore he simply cannot overlook it. So on what basis can this holy God not count sin against sinners? And the answer comes in verse 21, one of the most precious verses in all of Scripture. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God can justly not count our trespasses against us because he has counted them against Christ, our substitute. God can righteously not impute our sins to us because he has legally imputed them to Christ. On the cross, the Father transferred the debt of our sins to Christ's account. He imputed 
the sins of every person in every age who would ever believe in Christ to the Son of God on Calvary and punished our sin, punished our sin in him. And in that great psalm of worship, David says in Psalm 103, verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And it's true that God has not dealt with us according to our sins because God dealt with Jesus according to our sins. And he did so. The Father treated the sinless one as if he was the sinner. Second half of verse 21, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that not only would our sins be forgiven, not only would our debt be paid, but so that we might be credited with the perfect righteousness that God requires for reconciliation and fellowship with him. The Father treated Jesus as if he lived our life of sin and uncleanness so that he might legally and justly treat us as if we lived Jesus' perfect life of obedience. Romans 5.19, for as through the one man's disobedience the many were constituted sinners, so through the one man's obedience the many will be constituted righteous. See, brothers, Christ did more than just die for our sins, though that was amazing and unspeakably glorious. But he also lived to provide our righteousness. And when we trust in him, we lay hold of both benefits in union with him. He made him who knew no sin on, to, be, to be sin on our behalf. In other words, God imputed our sins to Christ so that we might become the righteousness of God in him so that God could impute Christ's righteousness to us. And brothers, we preach half the gospel if we don't preach both sides of that equation. The debt paid, the righteousness imputed. But what a blessed gospel, that full gospel that we have been entrusted to preach. This is the great exchange. This is my filthy garments of sin wrapped upon the sinless one and his pure white robe of righteousness laid upon me. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. I, my soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. The deeds of my Savior. And the saints have sung the song of the imputation of Christ's active obedience throughout the history of the church. In the second century, in the epistle to Diognetus, is celebrated this very text by exclaiming this, oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous man while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. In the 16th century, the English reformer Richard Hooker said it well when he said, let it be counted folly or frenzy, or fury, or whatever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this, that man hath sinned and God hath suffered, that God has made himself the sin of men, and that men are made the righteousness of God. 
And then in our own century, we sing the beautiful words penned by Chris Anderson. His robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered beneath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. Now, brothers, what is the consequence of all of that glorious theology? As important as it is, the consequence is not merely to get the doctrine right. We must get the doctrine right. We cannot be faithful in evangelism unless we get the theology right. We must have a gospel accomplished by an effectual penal substitution which necessarily issues in the transformation of believers on the basis of a monergistic regeneration. We must have a gospel whose great end is reconciliation with the all-satisfying triune God accomplished by a justification grounded on the perfect righteousness of Christ to be received through faith alone. But men, if we get all that right and we fail to proclaim it, we are the most execrable hypocrites on the planet. Woe be unto us if we do not preach the gospel. No one with eyes to see can behold the glory of the love of Christ displayed in that gospel, in all its magnificent brilliance, refracted through all these facets of gospel truth and not be compelled to proclaim it. And that is precisely the climax that Paul himself brings this passage to. We see it woven throughout verses 18 to 20. Paul says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, he says, God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And then in verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ in the conviction that God is making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We who are beneficiaries of this glorious gospel of substitution, transformation, regeneration, reconciliation, and justification have been commissioned with this ministry of reconciliation. That is, commissioned to the ministry of proclamation of that message to those who are not yet reconciled to God. Our sovereign king sends us as ambassadors of heaven to all the climes of this foreign land called planet Earth to speak this word of reconciliation on his behalf and in his place. We represent God himself and we represent the interests of, our, of the country of our heavenly citizenship in this fallen world. The heart and soul of the ministry to which Christ's followers have been called and most important, most of all, his under-shepherds have been called, whether you're the preaching pastor, whether you're the discipleship pastor, whether you're the, evan the outreach pastor, whether you're the membership pastor, the chief message, the chief task that we have been entrusted to is the verbal proclamation of the gospel that we have just celebrated. And if you have been reconciled, you will speak the word of reconciliation. Back in 2 Corinthians 4, 13, Paul says, we believe Therefore, we speak. Brothers, do you believe? 
Do you believe this message of Christ crucified for the salvation of your own souls? Then do you speak it? Do you speak it in the pulpit? Do you speak it in the counseling room as you wrestle with people through their sins and struggles? Do you speak it on the streets? Do you speak it in your own home? Whether to those little unbelievers that are there all the time or the grown unbelievers whom you invite into your home to show hospitality? And not just do you speak it, but as our passage says, do you plead with sinners? Do you beg men and women to be reconciled to God through Christ? There is to be an urgency and an earnestness with which we are to herald the terms of our king's proposed reconciliation to his enemies. Our proclamation of the gospel cannot be a cold, detached, impersonal, matter-of-fact recitation of facts. Christ died, you need him, take it or leave it. We can't just tack on a little gospel refrain to the end of our sermons. This proclamation that we have been commissioned with is earnest entreaty. Dear sinner, in the conviction that God himself is making an appeal through the very words that we speak, we beg you on behalf of Christ. We stand in the very place of Christ himself and we beg you, be reconciled to this great God. Be reconciled to this king you have so exquisitely offended whose wrath is justly kindled upon you, whom you cannot beguile or manipulate, out of whose hand of strict justice you cannot wiggle. Friend, be reasonable. You cannot withstand the strength of this king if he comes against you in the fierceness of his anger. You have no defense against the Holy One of Israel who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And yet... This fearful king sends me to you with terms of peace, with entreaties of reconciliation. Dear sinner, lay down your arms. Run from your certain destruction. Confess your sin. Turn away from your rebellion. Turn away even from your good works, which avail for nothing for righteousness before this holy God who demands perfection and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for righteousness, who has lived and who has died and who has been raised so that all may find salvation in him. And friend, if you're here this morning and you are outside of Christ, that pleading is for you. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is your day of salvation. What could hold you back? Repent of your sins where you sit. Trust in Christ. He is mighty to save you and stands yet willing to receive you. And for those of us who I pray is all of us who know Christ, those of us commissioned to be his pastors, his under-shepherds, the, the ones who care for the precious ones of his flock. It was the Puritan Thomas Brooks who said this, as it were to you. Beloved, the salvation of souls is that which should be first and most in a minister's eye, and that which should always lie closest and warmest upon a minister's heart. Oh, sirs, our dear Lord Jesus was infinitely tender of the souls of men. 
He left his father's bosom for souls. He trode the winepress of his father's wrath for souls. He prayed for souls. He sweated for souls. He bled out his heart's blood for souls. And he made himself an offering for souls. And oh, what an encouragement should this be to all his faithful messengers, Brooke says, to woo for souls, to mourn for souls, to pray for souls, to study for souls, and in preaching, to spend and be spent for the salvation of souls. Dear brothers, we have been commissioned by our sovereign king to be ambassadors in his stead, in the stead of the one who has stood in our stead, announcing terms of peace to his enemies through this glorious gospel of Christ, crucified and risen. We have been charged by the word of our God to do the work of an evangelist. May it never be that our king should find us negligent of our commission. May it never be that the men who sat here this morning are found derelict in this charge. May we be faithful in evangelism, brothers, compelled by the love of Christ to give our every breath for the proclamation of the gospel to sinners. Let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for how far short we fall in the very task which is the substance of our calling. We who concoct excuses to leave the gospel out of the sermon. Those of us of the spirit, of those who, who Dr. Beakey mentioned, have had enough of Christ. Let that not be us. Banish every affection of such kind from our hearts. Transform us, mold us into gospel preachers. Men who, yes, are delighted to labor in the text and the exegesis and, and see the, the, the illustrations and the, and the cross-references to be made and, and make a faithful implication and application of the text, but not fail to make application of the text to, the, to those in our audiences who do not know Christ. May we be faithful in evangelism in the pulpit. May we be faithful to proclaim the gospel to wounded sinners who struggle and labor with sin and who don't know how to make progress because they're not in Christ. Help us to discern between the sheep and the goats in our counseling room where we can proclaim the gospel faithfully to the unbelievers who seek us there and give them the resources in Christ to fight the fight of faith. Make us faithful in evangelism on the streets as the, the pastors here who stand in the pulpit would stand in the streets and would call men and women to repentance who, who would never darken the door of a church. May we be faithful to evangelize in the home where you've entrusted with us the charge of a family and also a, a dwelling to make use of for your glory among those who don't know you. Make us faithful. May we run in the, in the great stream, the great race of all these wonderful men who've gone before us, all these elder brothers who have been before us and have urged us to faithfulness. Holy Spirit, grant faithfulness to your men so that you, Lord Jesus Christ, would get what you are worthy of in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.